0: I think being a naturalist is just being in place Mm. and absorbing what's going on around you, being mindful of the things you see, taking note of that, and using that information to enrich your life.
1: Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who has ever felt deeply connected with a particular place and wanted to know how to know that place even better. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking about what it means to be a naturalist with Justin Garwood, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, we discuss snorkeling in ponds, what skills a naturalist needs and how to develop them, an abundance of tadpoles, glaciers in California, and how to cultivate deeper relationships with the landscapes and beings we love. And if this podcast has been helping you connect with the places you love, I hope you'll consider becoming a patron of the show for as little as $4 a month. That four dollars keeps the show going and gets you access to all kinds of cool extras, like the Patrons Only Book Club, which is currently voting on what book we're going to read for next month. If you want to check that out or explore the other benefits of membership, head over to Patreon.com/slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's, and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. And if you want a way to support the show that doesn't cost any money, you can leave a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, which helps more people find the show. Or you can share an episode with a friend who loves either California or being outside or being outside in California. Also, just a heads up, I usually publish an episode every other week during the podcast season, but I'll be taking a mini break to spend time with my family over the holidays and new episodes will be back in January. But now let's get to the episode. Justin Garwood has a deep love for the Klamath Mountains, where we recorded this interview. He was raised on the edge of the Trinity Alps in Lewiston, California, and pursued his education at Cal Poly Humboldt, where he received a BS in fisheries and an MS in wildlife management. He's currently an environmental scientist for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, with a focus on managing fishes, amphibians, and other aquatic fauna in Northern California's subalpine lake basins. He was also a Smith River salmon biologist for 10 years. One of his long-term research projects is studying population trends, demography, and habitat restoration response in Cascades Frogs, deep in the Trinity Alps wilderness. Justin is also a co-editor of the beautiful, award-winning book, The Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. So without further ado, let's hear from Justin Garwood on Golden State Naturalist. you listened to the last episode on the Klamath Mountains, you'll recall that I had the privilege of spending the morning with not one, but two naturalists and scientists of the Klamath Mountains on a rainy day back in April. In the last episode, Michael Kaufman and I talked about the Klamath Range and its incredible biodiversity, after which I sat down with Justin for this conversation on being a naturalist. And Justin has a deep connection with this place where we sat in a mossy, temperate rainforest on camping chairs under a Port Orford cedar, occasional droplets splashing down onto us through the dense leaves above. More about Justin's early connection with the natural world, what it means to know a place, and how each of us can get better at it in just a moment. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to say for it? Today on Golden State Naturalist, we're exploring what it means to be a naturalist with Justin Garwood. And in his preface to The Klamath Mountains, A Natural History, Justin describes his childhood growing up in Lewiston, California, a tiny town about an hour and a half east from where we sat for this interview in The Klamath Mountains. He writes, looking back, I realize I became a naturalist as a child through innate curiosity and imprinting on annual phenological patterns. This idea of being a naturalist as a child captured me. And I wanted to know more about Justin's story. How did you become a naturalist? How did you become interested in nature?
0: Yeah, until I was 18, the Klamath Mountains were the only place I really knew. I Mm. grew up here in a small town on the Trinity River. And I grew up in a great environment with my family, and we lived very simply. And I got to be exposed to nature as a child every day. Mm. And we didn't have a lot of. Amenities that city life has, or, or even semi urban life. It's, this is a remote area. So I had to do a lot of exploring on my own and around the house and property, and then it, ex- it extended into more extended journeys. And everything I imprinted on as a child was just what I saw, and it wasn't putting names on things. And I learned things very organically without that naturalist approach that a lot of people like to name things and put just put labels on stuff and i you know i think as a child you learn to just accept what's around you and turn it into something fun and joyous and mm-hmm. you know and that's how i felt about it looking back and
1: is that what inspired you kind of those early experiences to becoming a
0: biologist i have an interesting path i was not college bound when i got out of high school i mm-hmm. actually went to work with my dad who's a carpenter mm. and i learned carpentry and i learned later that i was you know, ready to do something new. I was young. I felt like I needed to go to school, but I was, you know, I kind of entered it into the junior college realm. Mm-hmm. And I was actually going to school at the time to be a radiologic technician, you know, an X ray technician. And that you had to take biology classes to do that. And mm. I took a biology class, and the professor just hooked me. And from there on, I, it was a calling for me, mm. and I completely changed my path and move forward into more of a hard science degree path. Later became a fisheries biologist, got my degree at Cal Poly Humboldt in fisheries.
1: If you're like me, you might have a somewhat fuzzy idea of what a fishery actually is. Oxford Languages tells me it can be a place where fish are reared for commercial purposes, or a fishing ground or area where fish are caught. And I looked up Cal Poly Humboldt's program on fisheries biology And their website says that if you study fisheries biology with them, you'll become knowledgeable and practiced in conservation, fishery management, aquaculture, water quality, fish ecology, and habitat restoration. They also note that they're the only fisheries biology program in California, which I did not know. Now, UC Davis might like to point out they have a department of wildlife, fish, and conservation biology. But to be fair, that does sound more general. But I don't have a horse in this race. I was an English major. Okay, but what did Justin do After he got that fisheries degree.
0: After that, I went back to Cal Poly Humboldt, got a degree in wildlife management, a master's degree. So that was a point in my life where it was a big learning curve to learn Western science and all the labels associated Mm. with it. You know, you got to cram a bunch of names in a short period of time and it feels really rushed, it feels competitive. Mm. But it's also rewarding in some ways because, you know, it gets you really focused on things. So that was kind of a transition from my childhood, which is more innate, to more of a a process that is goal-oriented, if you will. Mm. But that's when I really found I re-entered nature in a different way. I really wanted to learn, you know, ecology, names, distributions, all those things.
1: I love that Justin brought up the idea of names and knowing names. This is something I think about a lot as a naturalist, because learning names is a more multifaceted issue than it might at first appear. On the one hand, I think that knowing the name of a plant or animal allows us a path into a deeper relationship with that being. A person's name is usually one of the first things we learn about them. It can be a little hook we can hang other knowledge about the person on, like their preferences or what they're passionate about. And using someone's name is a way of acknowledging their identity and uniqueness. Learning the names of plants and animals can also give us a way to find out more about these organisms by telling us what we should type into a Google search, or what kinds of books we should read. So names can be a doorway into deeper knowledge and connection. They can be breadcrumbs we follow into more learning. On the other hand, I don't like the idea that people need to know a lot of names and taxonomies before they can consider themselves to be naturalists. That's just an incredible barrier to entry in an area where all should be welcome and all of our learning, however incremental, should be celebrated. And to complicate the naming issue further, the names humans give to things are made up by other humans and don't always capture the essence of a thing itself. For example, a lot of birds are named after humans that have nothing to do with the bird's behavior or life cycles or appearance in any way. And many of those humans they were named after were racists, even enslavers. And so those names are in no way illuminating about the birds themselves and also potentially harmful to people wanting to learn about the birds. Thankfully, just last month in November 2023, the American Ornithological Society announced in the words of one CNN article that all common English language names of bird species named after people will be changed, along with other monikers that have been deemed offensive. In total, approximately 70 to 80 birds, primarily in the US and Canada, will be renamed. My hope is that this is one small step toward making the outdoors and study of nature more inclusive. And I also hope that people will learn the names of all the species they love and have relationships with, so they can continue to deepen those relationships. Going out on guided hikes, referencing local field guides, or just using apps like Seek and iNaturalist can help with identification for anyone who's stuck. So learning names can be incredibly valuable. And it's great when people have done a lot of that learning particularly when they've also cultivated long and reciprocal relationships with organisms and places, and their accumulated name knowledge is just one small part of each of those relationships. And I think Justin's story is a great example of this way of being. He started out as a kid making observations, not necessarily knowing what he was looking at or what it was called, but starting to make sense of the landscapes around him through continued attention. Later, he dedicated himself to study in a way that was still grounded in a meaningful relationship with place. Let's get back to
0: his perspective on deepening those relationships.
1: So what do you think of as, what is a
0: naturalist? I think a naturalist is just having the curiosity to what is around you. That's a minimum. Mm -hmm. I also think that you almost need to, you know, I feel at this point in my naturalist life, if you will, I feel comfortable being in landscapes, especially ones I know and this comes down to this lived experience It takes a lot of time to get comfortable with not knowing everything that's around you there's a point where you're i gotta know this i gotta know that and you know trying to learn a landscape is tough in a short period of time but if you keep connecting with landscapes place-based learning mm. you know what makes the klamath mountains so special and it sends you on a journey that is rewarding across your life because that knowledge creates a sense that you kind of belong in this place and you're comfortable with it and you can absorb it in a a more enlightened way because I don't need to know what that tree is over there. I know that's a Port Orford cedar Mm -hmm. or I saw ruby crown kinglets in the in the riparian zone of of this creek. They're there and I'm just picking up on the timing of things and the what is out blooming right now. The trillium are up. They're just starting to bloom. Steelhead are running in the stream right next Mm -hmm. to us. And all those things are kind of background. And I love the experience of just being just settled, mm. you know, and absorbing things. And I'm also seeing new things. There's always things to learn. You're never you're never going to figure out an ecosystem completely. <laughs> and that's the magic of being a naturalist. Few things in a world are as inspiring as life itself and, and how it responds to the physical world.
1: That's beautiful. I think that tell me if this resonates with you. I'm kind of an introvert. Like I love, I'm an introvert who loves people. Right. But still, if I go to a party or something, I feel very uncomfortable and out of my element. But if I see someone I know at that party, then I'm like, Oh, thank God. Right. Like here's somebody I know. And when I go into the natural world, I sort of feel the same way a little bit where it's like, okay, I've gone into this space and Oh, there's a Valley Oak. Okay. Thank God. Like my friend is here. You know what I mean? And I feel like almost like I recognize that person or that I feel more at home because I kind of get a sense of what's going on in that place.
0: Absolutely, I mean, we humans are throughout our evolution are connected to nature; they're, they're, <laughs> they're inseparable, mm-hmm. right? Even though in this day and age, it's there's some pretty uh, dramatic shifts in, in how we connect with the natural world, or less so, should I say? But it's always powerful, and it does feel like an old, a familiar friend, especially when you get to know it over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge fan of place-based knowledge, you know, a lot of people, they leave where they grow up, but Mm -hmm. you go back to that place where you grew up As an adult and revisit it with a naturalist frame of mind, you're going to pick up things that you're going to connect with that you haven't connected with for years, perhaps decades. Mm. And it's going to resonate. And you don't even need to know what species it is, that Mm -hmm. plant or that. It's going to resonate with you because it's, it's making a connection to your childhood. So I think landscapes do that to us. They allow us to bridge the life of a human and how we connect with our environment.
1: Yeah, I was actually, I had a question about that for you. Like, how important do you think it is for somebody wanting to be a naturalist, right? Trying to kind of take on that mantle. To have a deep connection with a specific place versus maybe having a broader connection with a lot of
0: places. I generally like to do both. I do love to travel and traveling throughout California is always an amazing adventure because it's so diverse, both geologically and biologically. So I think there's multiple ways about this. But the place where you live and the the landscape around it, if you spend a lot of time out of doors, you're going to make deep connections with that landscape, Mm -hmm. especially as a naturalist, because a naturalist is... You're being intended to soak up what's around you at different times of the year, at different, you know, locations. All those things kind of build this knowledge that you have throughout your life. When you travel across, say, California or the West or go through the deserts, you're a visitor. And I always like to spend more than a day at a place. I almost feel three days minimum for me is really where I start feeling comfortable in a place enough to... like i'm existing there as a part of it as opposed to just being a a tourist that's Mm. visiting it you're exposed to the not only the plants and animals and geology and and everything that makes up that ecosystem you're exposed to the elements at that time Mm. at that place and it takes time to absorb that and i think you get a richer experience there's other times where you have an afternoon and you want to go birding Mm -hmm. so those are like i consider that kind of stuff is like working on your naturalist skills, if you Mm. will. So when you're out here like today, I don't need to look up a ruby crown kinglet because I saw a whole flock of them. I just heard them and knew that's cool, they're there. I knew that because I studied them really hard at one time.
1: (laughs) Right, right. And now as you go into the natural world, those pieces can come together organically.
0: Absolutely. And
1: you can feel that sense of place around you. I want to get into, you talked a little bit about naturalist skills And I'm curious what you would say for somebody who's kind of starting out, like, I have this interest in nature, but I don't really know how to be a naturalist. What kind of skills does somebody like that maybe need to start to work on to start to feel comfortable to be able to say, yeah, I'm a naturalist?
0: I think if you just open yourself up to what's around you, you're a naturalist. You don't need to know the names of things. Some of my best friends, naturalists, you know, they're not even biologists. So, you know, one one guy that's a really close friend of mine is a truck driver, Mm. and he knows so much more than a lot of people that I know because he pays attention and he's done it for a long period of time. But, you know, I think it's just accepting that you don't know everything. It's gonna take a long time to, especially in diverse systems, to learn it but that's okay because it's a journey it mm. it's really about patterns through time seeing things in different seasons and seeing the phenology that is the life cycle of say a mushroom when does it pop up and when does it disappear well you have to get out on the landscape to see that and that lived experience as a young naturalist entering into this this experience of being a naturalist it just adds up to a much richer experience every time you go out because you're building on You know, you may only learn a few things on that first outing, but keep going back. Go home, study your field guides. You don't have to have them out in the field all the time. That might put blind spots on other things that you're going to see. Take notes, look at patterns, and that's what I do. I kind of keep my field books in the car or at home, and sometimes I take notes, and the notes are really rewarding to look back and on because it's part of your journey and you know i have notes from 15 years ago that i've reread and it just brings all that back Mm. and what i was thinking at the time Mm -hmm. and then all the experience across those 15 years since then it really makes you think about it differently and it's really fascinating to to revisit those
1: so it gives you those are kind of ways in sort of observation skills and sort of opening yourself up to observations And as you're doing that, I'm starting to hear you talk about tools that you use as well, like a notebook. And so it's a good idea to carry a notebook with you. Are there any other tools that you recommend that people have on hand as they go and connect with the natural world?
0: It depends on what you're doing. You know, I don't typically like to carry a lot of things with me, but there's Mm -hmm. times when I'm prepared. I'm an aquatic biologist. I work in, in ponds and wetlands and lakes and rivers. And those places, you know, you got to be a little more prepared. For example, I really am a huge fan of snorkeling in rivers and ponds and lakes. And you got to have some gear for that. you got to have a mask and, a, you know, obviously mask and snorkel. You may need a wetsuit. But it allows you to do it. It allows you to see fish in their natural environment. So it's really rewarding. Obviously, if you're birding, binoculars are an important feature for sight birding but you know, don't rule out learning calls because sometimes you won't see birds and those calls are very important to know. That's a pretty big learning curve, but it's a good goal if you're really into ornithology. And then visiting places, you wanna have the right footwear. I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of going out off trail. Going to places that you don't feel as comfortable, I guess, it's more rugged. But when you get used to walking through those environments, you're seeing different things than what's on a trail. But also you're seeing patterns that are not groomed. If this is, these are wild places. And sometimes these adventures could be days, they could be hours. But when I go out for an extended period, you always want to be prepared. Say, if you're off trail and it's in a good distance, be prepared to spend the night. Mm. Because who knows what's going <laughs> right, to happen. Right. And, you know, I have field crews that work with me, and I always tell them if you're going to go off on a day hike during work, you must carry a headlamp and clothing to survive the night mm. and enough food and water. Basic stuff. I mean, we have more fancy things like GPS and messaging things so we can stay in touch with our crews. But at the same time, you, those can fail as well. So I mm. say, be prepared. I'm not telling people to do extreme things necessarily, (laughs) but if you are a naturalist that likes to go off trail and go deep in the woods and and explore places without trails, you're going to see amazing things, you're going to see amazing wildlife, you're going to get a different perspective, but you got to be prepared for that with your clothing, footwear, survival, and uh, having a check-in system with with other people.
1: In the 1930s, a Seattle-based outdoor community called the Mountaineers came up with a list of 10 essential items that should be carried at all times by anyone venturing into the great outdoors. That list has been tweaked and improved over the intervening decades, and now it's widely acknowledged as a good idea to always have these items. Here's a list from the National Park Service website. One, navigation, so map, compass, and GPS system. Two, sun protection, sunglasses, sunscreen, and hat. Three, insulation, jacket, hat, gloves, rain shell, and thermal underwear. Four, illumination, flashlight, lantern, and headlamp. Five, first aid supplies. Six, fire, so matches, lighter, and fire starters. Seven, repair kit and tools, so duct tape, knife, screwdriver, and scissors. Eight, nutrition, so food. Nine, hydration, so water and water treatment supplies. And ten, emergency shelter, so tent, space blanket, tarp, or bivvy, which is like a sack or tiny tent that goes just over your sleeping bag, or just over you in an emergency. And you don't need to carry every single one of those items I mentioned, but rather a functional representation of each of the ten groups. I'll link this list in the show notes in case you want to take a closer look at it. And most of these items are light and take up a tiny amount of space. So I keep them in my day pack at all times and recommend that everyone do the same. It's possible to get hopelessly lost even when staying on the
0: trail. So bring these along and don't die of exposure. Mm -hmm. So I brought that up because I I do that a lot. I work in subalpine wilderness zones for my job. So we're always remote. So it's always on our mind.
1: Right. And what about there's a whole school of thought of like, no, stay on the trail. Because you might be kind of wrecking, you know, the, the habitat around. So where do you find a balance in those things? And how do you know that you're not doing too much damage? Kind of? Right. Window?
0: And that's important because California has over 30 million people. Right. Here where we are in the Klamath Range, walking off trail here is not a big deal mm. at all. Mm-hmm. Because we are very remote. And we're, but whereas if you're in a park or you're in a busy place in more of an urban setting... Definitely you have to pay attention to our impact. And, you know, those off-trail adventures turn into social trails and social Mm, trails, you know, create havoc. Social trails
1: are unofficial trails that form because lots of people walk off trail in the same place. You might have heard about these being a big problem with wildflowers, which often can't grow in compacted soil. And when lots of people are going out to see super blooms of California poppies or lupins or other beautiful native wildflowers that I'm so glad people want to go see, they sometimes end up going off the official trails and trampling and compacting the delicate soils so badly that the wildflowers won't grow back in those places anytime soon. So it's especially important in those situations to stay on trails and get that perfect wildflower selfie from the main trail. But social trails can be a problem beyond super blooms and harming other delicate habitats. The National Park Service points out that social trails can also cause people to get lost, because sometimes these unofficial trails get so well-worn that they start to look like official trails, which is confusing for hikers who don't know the area well.
0: So you definitely, there's places where you do need to stay on trail and those are the more uh, popular zones, Mm -hmm. but that's okay. You're taking care of that environment that gets a lot of visitation and that place is important to touch people in nature that live in cities that perhaps don't have that opportunity in their daily life.
1: Sure. So staying mindful to the kind of place that you're in and the potential impact that you might be having. Right. That's great. So if you're in, say, Griffith Park in LA, or a popular hiking spot close to any large town or city, or anywhere with signs telling you about potential dangers or active habitat restoration, that's when you should stay on the trail. 94% of California's 39 million people live in urban areas, And the hiking spots closest to those urban centers are going to be places to stay on trails because there are a lot of us and ecosystems just can't take that kind of outpouring of love in the form of foot traffic. So most of us will have to do a bit of driving before we're in a place where it's okay to go exploring off trail. Also remember to bring those 10 essentials with you if you do this and don't die of exposure. And a lot of what I'm hearing you say too, like going snorkeling in a pond, like I love that image by the way, just like going in and I imagine just hiking down a trail and then seeing a guy snorkeling in a pond as I walk along and you just don't see that every day. Or, you know, getting off trail and doing something totally different. Those to me shout just change in perspective, right? Those are very opportunities to get a different perspective on a place. You might stand there and look at that pond. You might stand there for an hour and look at that pond. And you see something very different if you get inside of that pond.
0: Oh, it opens up a world that, that is unbelievable to see things if you go into a pond with a faceplate on and you're looking around, you're seeing so much life that you would never see from, a, from land. Mm. One tool that I recommend people that are around water that don't get in the water is polarized sunglasses. Mm. They offer an amazing view into water, when, especially in certain cases when you have glare. They really open up your ability to see things. So that's another great tool that we use in our jobs. Mm. As aquatic scientists, we visually search for things a lot sunglasses is is like mandatory for doing salmon and steelhead spawner surveys or doing our doing amphibian surveys in lakes if there's glare you're not going to see your target but when you actually slip into an environment that's foreign to, to to humans in a sense that you know we're not a, an aquatic species mm-hmm. with we can't open our eyes underwater and, and see clearly a faceplate allows that to happen and it's such a joy to to be a visitor to those places it with going in and there's places where I snorkel survey and I you know you're swimming with western pond turtles mm-hmm. you're, you're swimming with newts And then, you know, you have this search image for all these things. And then you focus what's right in front of you. This happened to me. I was in the middle of a pond and I was looking for turtles with my friend. And he goes, have you seen those big Daphnia, you know, which is a zooplankton? They're everywhere. It's like a pea soup. And all of a sudden I refocused my eyes to what was right in front of me. And all of a sudden there was a soup of zooplankton. (laughs) And... I was so focused on other things that that search image I wasn't really tuned to. So search image really influences what we see as naturalists. You know, you're going to focus on certain things, but remind yourself to kind of broaden that horizon Mm -hmm. sometimes. And you'll be exposed to completely new novel things that you never would have seen, you know. And that's the beauty of sharing natural history with others, too, is you pick up from what other people see.
1: There's so much in kind of being in community with people and learning from them. And I'm wondering, too, about other ways. You've talked about snorkeling in ponds. You've talked about going off trail. I'm wondering if you have any stories that you want to share about ways that you've gotten a perspective shift or times that you've done something maybe unconventional that yielded maybe a lot of learning about the natural
0: world. So, yeah, I... Back in 2009, I was finishing my master's degree, and I there's a place I've always wanted to go to in the Klamath Mountains that I had suspected and heard that there was these glaciers, these small glaciers that were still remaining. And I've worked around these places, I've looked up there, and I've always seen snow. And so they were presumed to be these glaciers. And it's significant because if you look across California, the highest glaciers are on Mount Shasta, Mm. and then the glaciers throughout the Sierra Nevada, you know, all the other glaciers in California are about 1,700 feet higher than those that would be in the Klamath Mountains. Mm. So I went to this location. It's up below Thompson Peak and Caesar Cap in the Trinity Alps to see if there's these, indeed, these glaciers, and it was a week-long adventure off-trail for me. I went up there. It's a very rugged landscape, and I show up, and I started walking around these features and it just floored me because mm. they were indeed glaciers. I would read a, wow. there's a great natural history book by Bill Guyton, Glaciers of California. Wow. It, it's a great natural history of ice. It's it's really fun read. Wow. But I took that with me. I read the book from cover to cover and I go there. So I had all the attributes I needed to define are these glaciers or not as a wow. complete novice. And I came out of there just really elated by what I saw, because these things weren't stagnant, they were actually moving at the time, making sounds, Mm. the water rushing off them. It was really magical, but they also seemed like they were in trouble. Mm. So I came back and I got together with a bunch of other naturalist friends. And I said, you guys need to come up to see this. So we went back the following year and the place was silent and covered in snow because Mm. it was a big snow year. The year before it was a light snow year. So I started learning like, oh, the dynamics of these glaciers, they're tucked into these northeast facing headwalls of these, the highest peaks of the Trinity Alps. Their niche is so tiny. It's the coldest nook in the entire mountain range. And they're able to persist there, you know, over 130 years past the Little Ice Age. Mm -hmm. All this was like giant epiphanies for me being a local and the fact that there was Really nobody studying them or marking what their status was put me on a mission to track them. And I thought I was just going to do a single year Mm -hmm. or or two and say, oh, here's two glaciers. They still exist and they're this big. But then the I'm going to call it the Great California Drought happened 2013 to 2022. And I had spent those 12 or so years at that point, just happened to be there at that time. The demise of the glacial ice in the Klamath Mountains and last fall, well, Salmon Glacier melted off by 2015 mm. with slightly lower elevation. And Grizzly Glacier melted off last fall completely. Mm. Mm. So we've entered a new climate kind of regime, I think, in this region because of the li- loss of that ice. Ice either grows or it melts. It's, mm. very, it's a very linear thing, right? Mm. So I feel like we've crossed a boundary and that's important to know locally, like picking up that local knowledge on climate change and sharing it. I'm not a glaciologist. I don't claim to be at all. I claim to be a community scientist mm-hmm. that was interested and I took that path. And there's others involved. We, I got more people involved and even glacier people. And it was really fun to connect with those people because they... They accepted that I was a total novice. And one funny thing that I asked um, one of my colleagues, who is a glaciologist, I said, you want to join some knuckleheads to do this glacier monitoring with us? <laughs> and he goes, he gets back to me with an email and he says, us has got to stick together. <laughs> so I was like, I like, like it brought down because, you know, his name's Dr. Andrew Fountain and he's at Portland State University Mm -hmm. and he studies glaciers around the world. He's an authority, right? Mm -hmm. But he loved the passion of us, you know, these naturalists that wanted to take this on and he was a great mentor for that. It's a sad story but it's also, I'm really resolute about because it's not the Greenland ice sheet or, Mm or Antarctica cleaving giant sections of glaciers. It's local, it's here, it's measurable, And it's an important story to document and tell.
1: And if you're interested in that story, there's a great 2020 article in Backpacker on Justin's work on Grizzly Glacier. I'll link it in the show notes in case you wanna learn more. And I think, yeah, you've mentioned elsewhere too about this idea of bringing global issues home. And I really like that. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for anyone who is wanting to see global issues on a local scale, kind of how they can start to look for and notice those things
0: well disturbance regimes hmm. these are things that are natural processes in an ecosystem such as fire such as floods even animals are disturbance regimes you know some of the down logs around here bears are tearing them apart to get hmm. grubs and when they tear these down logs apart that creates habitat for other critters such as salamanders hmm. so there's lots of disturbance regimes out there visiting these these events when they are catastrophic or just out of line with their renewing capacity that, that they normally kind of, you know, like fire has a renewing capacity to yeah. landscapes, or it could absolutely scorch an entire area mm. to, to nothing where that forest might not come back.
1: If you haven't already, make sure to check out the fire ecology episode with Robin Lee Carlson to learn more about what makes a good fire versus a bad fire.
0: I think visiting places that have experienced maybe more extreme disturbance regimes is really eye-opening as a naturalist, because you really see how a place changes, and especially places that you know that have seen massive wildfire or massive floods go through. There's such a dramatic change that when you witness that firsthand, it allows you to just absorb what's going on Mm -hmm. locally and how it's going to impact the environment that you uh, live and imprint on. So. I've done that this last year, I visited places that I use words like apocalyptic mm. to describe some of the flooding that I've seen on top of recent wildfire. You may have heard of the Klamath fish kill that happened in 2022 from the McKinney Fire, which was up by Wairika. Mm. We had a rainstorm come through that area around the first of August, right after that wildfire had started. and. It completely devastated streams to the point where the Klamath River, we had many tens of thousands of dead fish mm. because they couldn't breathe. There's too much sediment in the stream. Wow. Well, that same rain cell came over places where I work, like where the glaciers are. And I was up in the subalpine zone and it had come over this area that had burned in the early 2000s. It reburned in 2021. So there was no wood on the ground to to stop water from shedding, super Mm -hmm. steep landscape. And it absolutely destroyed every stream in that area to the point it was unrecognizable. Mm. And it's gonna take many decades for that place to recover. So seeing that is very eye-opening, but also it makes you more resolute in what's going on. Mm. Well, I
1: think that what's really powerful there too, is that at least for me, and I think that I probably can speak for a lot of people on this. It's very easy in this day and age to become desensitized to all of the doom and gloom, right? Like we see these images, the Greenland ice sheet, we see all these things on the news about these massive wildfires and climate change, you know? And I think that it's very easy, the most, the best way to survive that, I think for a lot of us, is to just shut your brain off, right? I can't cope with that. I can't cope with the idea that my world is changing so radically that it's going to make it hard for my children to survive in this world, right? Mm -hmm. And the easiest thing to do is to pretend it's not happening. And I think that if we can then go on this local scale and actually bear witness, right, to something local that's happening to a place we maybe knew what it looked like before and now we can compare it to what it looks like now, it's a way to kind of open yourself back up to feeling something again and to experiencing something that maybe we've shut our brains and our our hearts off to.
0: Right. Global issues are really difficult to comprehend because Mm -hmm. you don't have that kind of place-based experience to connect with it. Becoming familiar with a landscape allows you to also see how the biota respond to physical change. Mm -hmm. The biological world, can respond to pretty dramatic changes. And quickly, some species will take advantage of a a disturbance, whereas others will not benefit at all. And actually, it'll cause them to have to seek refuge in other places. But it's that amazing adaptability that biodiversity has to to continue. And it's been doing it for eons, and it's how everything has evolved today to what it is. So take example, the, the glacier stuff I was telling you about, There was a species of beetle that was described on that grizzly glacier, one of the glaciers, in 2009. It was a new species. Hmm. And it was predicted to be there. David Kavanaugh from Cal Academy of Sciences, he studies this genus of beetles around the world, and he predicted they were there. And sure enough, they found them at this site because they're a cold-loving beetle. They need ice or cold zones to survive. And the only habitat for that beetle so far has been That piece of ice, Mm. when I started monitoring that piece of ice, it was around eight acres. Okay, now it's gone. Mm. And that beetle, that's the habitat where it exists. And a question is posed is what's going to happen to that beetle? It's a tough conservation issue because with salmon, there's lots of streams. We can fix some streams and try to maintain salmon populations through having lots of habitat available to them. When you have a beetle like that's endemic to this piece of ice per se, is it going to adapt or is it going to perish? And that's a great thing to think about because that ice was only, it's not from the Pleistocene, it's only about 700 years old. Mm. It's from the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age was a global cool period between about the years 1300
1: and 1850. It's not fully understood why this cooling occurred, but it probably had to do with a decrease in solar activity and an increase in volcanic activity, among other factors. And the result was a planet that was about a half a degree Celsius cooler on average and up to two degrees Celsius cooler in some places. Currently, because of anthropogenic climate change, temperatures are 1.1 degrees warmer than the pre-industrial global average. So these small glaciers and the endemic beetles living on them have had a lot to contend with.
0: So that beetle was around before that ice. But has climate change taken us so far out that somehow these species cannot adapt? That's yet to be determined.
1: Like it was hanging on in that one last refuge. And then if that refuge disappears, then where does the beetle go? Exactly. So since this beetle existed before the Little Ice Age, before Grizzly Glacier existed there's a chance it will find a way to keep living now that the glacier is gone. We just don't know yet either way. Another question I'm wondering about is, I think for me, as somebody who is used to living in a city and having a faster pace of life, it can be hard for me to cultivate the kind of stillness that I think can sometimes be required to make really deep observations. Like, I tend to be sort of this anxious moving ball of kinetic energy sometimes, right? I just kind of want to move around and look at stuff. And I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for how people can cultivate a sense of peace or stillness inside of themselves to allow the world to open up.
0: That's definitely something that's difficult to do with a busy life, especially if you have children. You know, you're out with friends. When you're out with friends, you tend to have conversation. There's some amazing things you can see if you can have moments of silence and focus Mm -hmm. in nature. Some of the most novel things I've seen are by sitting and just taking it in. There's a pond that I have a long-term monitoring project on a species of frog, the Cascades frog. I've been studying this frog in this area for 20 years Mm -hmm. now. This is going into 21. And it's one animal I can say that I probably could be an authority on Mm -hmm. to some degree, but I definitely don't know everything. But 20 years in, I've learned a lot about the animal. But one thing I never really did was sit on a pond in the fall when there's tons of tadpoles of this frog and they're they're metamorphosing and they're along the margins. There's tadpoles with legs, but they're not quite out yet. Mm. They're just starting to become terrestrial adults. But the pond is a place of intense fury because lots of things are eating them as they're coming out. Mm. This is wild nature. So there's snakes there which I see a lot, but I always saw a lot of bird tracks. So one day I was done with my work a little early and I hid inside some talus at this <laughs> pond. And I said, I'm gonna watch this. I have my binoculars. So I'm sitting there and then two Clark's Nutcrackers, which are a bird that's a corvid. And they have this mutualistic relationship with whitebark pines and they think they're obligate seed eaters. Mm. And they cast their seeds and that's how whitebark pine forests exist mm. because they're planted by seeds that are left behind. So there's this really strong relationship, but in the fall, I saw them eating tadpoles and froglets. They were getting them off of the shore of this pond and what a great like short period of protein for those animals to capitalize on because the amphibians there's thousands of tadpoles. I also saw at that same point American dippers feeding on tadpoles. Mm-hmm. American dippers are thought of as a stream bird, but they come up into these high elevation lakes and they use them as like a summer habitat before they freeze over and they they overwinter and lower in streams. So they're taking advantage of this pond. American robins were in there coming in and chipmunks were eating them. And all this like happened within an hour. And if I wouldn't have just taken the time to do that, I never would have known all those connections between those consumers and prey. And it was just an hour. So I do encourage people to just sit. So maybe
1: part of cultivating stillness is knowing that it's worthwhile, that there are deeper observations or novel observations to be made through stillness. And if you're like me and you aren't quite ready to try this for an hour, try being still in nature, which includes a city street with a dandelion growing on it, for five minutes or even five breaths, because wherever you need to start is a good place to start and will help you build stamina for longer periods. I've also found that being still with a notebook or nature journal can be a huge help. I can practice deeper observations by drawing something I'm seeing. And even if it's an awful drawing, it's making me look more closely and notice more detail, and I'm still recording information that I can go back to and reference later. The same goes for taking notes or writing poetry, essays, or stories inspired by a place. Okay, but let's hear what Justin's next adventure in stillness is going to be.
0: One thing I've always wanted to do and I've never had the opportunity is to sit in a stream for an entire day from like morning to evening and just watch what happens. Mm. Watch what goes by because it's dynamic system stuff is always moving through. I I'm just curious, but I've never myself have gotten to do that because that's a decent investment in time. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. It really is. And and I think it takes a certain amount, at least for me, right? It is hard for me to sit still in a place for 10 minutes if, right. I'm, if I don't have an activity, right? <laughs> right? I'm so used to the pace of life in my more urban suburban setting. And it's very hard for me to adapt that pace to somewhere else. So to do sun up to sundown that would be a, an exercise in mindfulness on a level that <laughs> most of us aren't prepared
0: for. Absolutely, being in nature is is so calming, no matter what you're doing. But definitely, if you take moments to just soak in with your senses, mm-hmm. all your senses. We are in a rainstorm right now, and it's mm-hmm. the sun's out, yeah. and all the all the branches of this Port Orford cedar are glistening, and I can smell the rain. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would be like, it's raining, let's get in the car.
1: <laughs> right?
0: But you'd miss out on this magical setting where we are in. The moss is electric right now.
1: I just saw a raindrop hit this giant flake of lichen and then just the, it just it bounced up and down, right? Like it's just this tiny thing. That's an observation that you have to be close and you kind of have to be still to a certain extent.
0: Absolutely.
1: I really like Justin's suggestion about using all of our senses. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but there's a great mindfulness exercise where you simply go down the list of your senses and first notice five things that you can see, followed by four things you can feel, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. Of course, making informed choices about what you touch and taste. I love this exercise for any time I feel like I need to connect my brain back to my body, but it's particularly great for being outside and finding a way to be fully present. Are there any myths about being a naturalist that you would like to debunk?
0: Being a naturalist, you know, a naturalist is a label for connecting yourself to the natural world. And sometimes that label can be interpreted as it's a separate thing. It's like, oh, you're you're out being a naturalist, Mm. you know. You want to live as a naturalist. Cities have lots of things that are novel in an ecosystem perspective. Mm. It's a novel ecosystem, but... You're going to see nature there as well. I think being a naturalist is just being in place Mm. and absorbing what's going on around you, being mindful of the things you see, taking note of that, and using that information to enrich your life.
1: I'm going to get to what I love about Justin's definition of the word naturalist in just a moment. But first, I have to share some top notch trivia with you. Did you know that one now obsolete meaning of the word naturalist was taxidermist? Another one was a person who follows their natural impulses. I don't think these two definitions were ever combined, though, or we'd have a person who was driven by their natural impulses to do taxidermy. But the current definition of a person who is an expert in or student of natural history was first used in the year 1600, and then exploded in popularity in the mid-1800s after the publication of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. My friend Tori very generously used her OED subscription to look that up for me. And when I heard those dates, a question started to percolate in my mind. So on a hunch, I looked up the history of urbanization in Great Britain, and the NIH has a page that says, Urbanization proceeded across the period 1600 to 1800, but accelerated in the first half of the 19th century. By 1851, over half of the population lived in settlements of 2500 or more, peaking at around 80% by the 1890s. Now, these two graphs, British urbanization and popularity of the word naturalist in English, are similar but not identical. And I'm not arguing that there's a causal relationship between them. But the fact that the word naturalist became popular in English right as Great Britain was urbanizing makes me wonder if we only needed a word like naturalist in English once most English speakers had a less direct relationship with the earth. Maybe before urbanization, for people who relied on the weather and the plants and the animals around them to live, Being a naturalist would just be being alive. No fancy word needed. But now the connection between us and the land is less apparent. Most of us don't see the farms where our food is grown or the way that minerals from the earth are transformed into iPhones or even how water ends up in our taps. But what I love about Justin's definition of the word naturalist, which is about being in place and attentive to place, is that it can help us start to see those connections again, regardless of where we live. And while attending to our direct surroundings won't necessarily show us the farm where our food is grown, it might help us expand our curiosity about how all of these systems come together. It might remind us that everything on Earth comes from the Earth and goes back to the Earth. And it might prompt us to get curious about what that means and what our place is in all of it. And all of that curiosity and expansion of perspective can start with noticing what's around us whether in our cities or in a remote part of the Klamath Mountains.
0: Like today, we, were, we looked at a little pond. We saw a bunch of newts in there. We saw a small newt ball. That means they're breeding here. Right now, we, we witness that 95% of the year, you're not going to see that. We mm-hmm. happen to be here. I'm going to take note of that. And being a naturalist, you are, you're taking all that in to your overall life experience. It's adding to that, and it makes you knowledgeable and it makes you more resolute and comfortable with being in the natural world where we should thrive, Mm. right? Sometimes there's barriers there. Sometimes those barriers are known. Sometimes they're unknown, Mm -hmm. but being in a city, that's kind of a barrier to some people. Like they don't consider it nature. Some people see nature in cities. Go where you're comfortable, at least start that way, and then try to expose yourself to different ecosystems. Mm. And you're going to become more comfortable with nature, say, if you're just breaking in to where, you know, I'm comfortable as deep as you can get into the Klamath mountains (laughs) because I grew up here. I'm a biologist here. I'm I'm very comfortable with being out there. And when I'm out there, I don't feel like I'm practicing something like Mm. I'm practicing being a naturalist. I'm just, I'm living, right? And I'm taking in what I'm seeing. And there's a point where you start feeling like you're part of this system. Because you know a lot about it. And that is a wonderful feeling because it makes you comfortable with not knowing everything because you know you're never going to know it all. But you're going to know more every time you go, every season you go, in different weather. All those things are going to bring out different things.
1: I love that. And after all of this time, spending your whole life as a naturalist in one way or another, what about entering spaces like this still takes your breath away?
0: That it's still here. Mm. That Every time you come here, you get different kinds of magic. Today is just as magical as it would be in the fall. It would be different. All the big leaf maples would be electric color, but right Mm. now all the moss is just vibrant. The steelhead are spawning right below us in the stream. Right now is the time for renewal. Right now is the time for the next generation. In the fall, you're coming in and seeing how that generation's doing. It's, you know, the progeny of these salmon. If you come in here and snorkel this stream in the summer, you'll see all the fry and par. Hmm. So that's what's magical to me is it's always changing. And you'll never come back to this place we are at and it will be the same. It will never be the same. And there's magic in that.
1: I think that's a perfect note to end on. Justin, thanks so much for sharing your experiences and taking the time to talk to me.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So take a moment each day to notice the world around you, and then maybe even take it a little further and learn the names of a few species you see frequently. Read up on those species and watch how they change throughout the year. Follow your own curiosity the way you'd follow a stream to a river and a river to the ocean. See where it goes and what it can teach you. You may find some surprising insights, some better questions to ask, or a few interesting amphibians along the way. A big thank you to Justin for sharing his stories and knowledge so generously with all of us. If you want to see more of Justin's work firsthand, check out the beautiful award-winning book, The Klamath Mountains, A Natural History, which Justin co-edited and to which he contributed a chapter. I also want to thank my friend Tori for helping me with the OED research and for reminding me that in the movie Zootopia, the word naturalist is used to refer to nudists. I think the word Disney was looking for was naturist, not naturalist, but maybe some people are both, and I'm not here to judge. Thank you to Cliff for filling me in on bird names, and to Stan for taking our kids to the zoo while I was recording this interview. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave a rating on Spotify or review on Apple Podcasts. This helps people trust that hitting play is going to be a good use of their time, which helps the show grow, which helps more people get connected to the natural world. And if you want to see what my face looks like or find out about projects I'm working on, like the holiday gift guide I just created or another exciting project I'm getting ready to announce soon, make sure to follow me on Instagram at Golden State Naturalist. If you listen to the end of the episode, I always tell you something interesting or mundane or embarrassing about my week. And this week is that I'm trying out a new workflow where instead of sitting down and trying to do everything I need in one sitting, I just sit and work for 45 minutes, and then I get up and move my body for five minutes. And this sounds like it would be less productive because I'm frequently stopping what I'm doing to walk around the block or do jumping jacks in my living room, but I'm actually much more focused and getting more done, which is exciting. Okay, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and sharing and reviewing and all of the wonderful things you do. I can't wait to see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called "I Ida Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to the song as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes.